Um, well, we're in the book of Nahum tonight, and um, we have this week and then two more weeks in the minor prophets, uh, the pre-exile minor prophets. We've already went through the post-exile uh, minor prophets, which would uh, have been um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They prophesied during the return and the, the rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. And uh, so these, <clears throat> this is kind of a trio of, of books that, that really are read together well. Um, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Um, we've kind of entered into the a next phase. And uh, as we've done this, We have a successor. He finally figured out how to mute those things. And you should have him have disciple you in the ways of how to quietly follow sports in church. <laughs> Andrew's full of wisdom. Oh, that was great. I love it. It's March Madness, baby. Um, well, we've got... Uh, the sort of final three of, of the Minor Prophets. You like how I tied that in? Final three. It's not the final four, it's the final three. Slow, slow clap. Uh, but I've said this a number of times, but I, I've just really enjoyed reading all of these as a collection, of these, the, the, the Minor Prophets as a collection of books that, that work together and flow from one to the next. Um, and I'm not sure why I've never really, it's never really, I've never really caught on to that before, uh, but it really is an awesome collection. And these three in particular, they, they work together really well. Um, so they are directed or written during uh, the, the period of decline in Judah and Jerusalem. All right. So northern Israel is kind of out of the picture now. Um, the, the prophets that were prophesying to the north are uh, they're gone, and, and the north itself has been taken into captivity in Assyria. And so these next three books, they anticipate the downfall uh, of Jerusalem and Judah, uh, but also everything that's going on during that time. So, but it, it's sort of in reverse order, because Nahum deals with the, God's judgment on Assyria, and it was the Assyrians that took the northern tribes into captivity, and God is now, just like he raises up a nation to judge his people, to, to punish his people, then he turns around and he judges that nation because, uh, because of their sin, all right? And so uh, Nahum deals with Assyria's doom. Habakkuk talks about now God's purposes in raising up Babylon, all right? So now there's a new beast on the horizon. And this kind of goes right along with... Um, you know, kind of Daniel's progression of, of empires, the beast gets bigger and bigger. You know, there's always a bigger fish and the, this fish eats that fish. And then, so that's what's going on. And so down goes Assyria, up comes Babylon. And then Zephaniah actually is kind of, uh, it's, a, it's in reverse order uh, chronologically. Zephaniah uh, is written during the reign of Josiah who was the king before Manasseh, who was the king that really got things, you know, kind of beyond the point of no return for Judah. And so Zephaniah is there during the reign of Josiah saying, listen, uh, it's, you know, it's coming. The total destruction is coming. 
Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into these, uh, these three, these next three weeks. Um, Habakkuk raises questions of, of how God is going to deal with the violence and the bloodshed of God's enemies, right? And Nahum is actually the book that answers those questions. All right, so Habakkuk, there, it begins in the prophet is saying, what are you going to do, Lord? How, how are you going to take care of all this? Well, the, the book before has already answered those questions. This is how, and this is what we're going to talk about this evening, Nahum describes how God deals with his enemies, how God brings judgment, how God's wrath uh, is unleashed on those who really have filled up their sins before God. You know, when it's time for judgment... Nahum describes the way it goes for the enemies of God. So Nahum was likely written during Manasseh's reign. Um, and so Judah, Judah themselves were experiencing the hand of the, the wrath of God. They were, they were under the wrath of God at that point. Um, so what, what Nahum does... Um, it points to, and this is kind of the big thought, it points to not just how God's going to deal with the immediate threat of the Assyrians, right? Okay, he's going to take care of them. They are going to experience the full fury of God's wrath. But just like the book of, oh, what was it? I'm, I always get all these mixed up. What was the book? Edom, uh, Obadiah. I just want to say the book of Edom, but it's the book of Obadiah. Um, just like we, it showed, we zoomed in on one particular uh, nation that God was dealing with. Nahum zooms in on one particular nation that God's dealing with, but in doing that, in going small, in zooming in, shows us a, a, a general principle about the way God operates. Okay, so Nahum shows us not just how God's going to deal with the immediate threat of Assyria. They were the big superpower. They were the bullies of the area. But how he deals with any threat and opposition to his good kingdom, okay? The book of Nahum shows us how God ultimately deals with any opposition to the goodness of the kingdom of God. And the ultimate fate of any endeavor of man to exercise and walk in authority outside of God's sovereign will, right? When mankind starts to make giant... um, nations and, and, and machinery and cities apart from God. This is the city of man, and it's built on the flesh. And God ultimately brings those cities to nothing, brings those works of mankind to nothing. Any endeavor uh, uh, taken, up, taken up by man that persists in independence from God, ultimately God will uh, bring them down. Uh, it's like the Johnny Cash song. You know, you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. You know? Uh, this is, the book of Nahum is, God's going to cut you down. You know? Uh, the, it is time. The time is now. Uh, but also, it points us forward and shows us how God's going to deal with any wicked city that exalts itself against its reign. Um, but even more than that, I think it, it shows us how God's going to deal with any and every last hideout of evil in the earth. 
right? God is judge. God is a warrior judge. This is what, this is the, the aspect of God that's revealed in the book of Nahum. God is a warrior judge who is going to gather up everything that is evil, everything that is bad, everything that is violent, everything that is wicked, everything that is opposed to who he is. He's going to gather it all up and send it far away. Right? This is the ultimate hope that we have. And this is how we are going to, and this is what the book of Revelation describes. It's all going to be taken away, gone, rooted out, so that mankind can dwell in the new heavens and the new earth that is pure, spotless, and God is, God is in the midst of them. All right, so this, is, this book talks about the aspect of God that is vengeful and, 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 and full of, of wrath, all right? It says, um, the burden or oracle against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. I don't think he could make it any more clear <laughs> what he's talking about. And he reserves wrath for his enemies. Now remember, we've been looking at the same thing about God. It's the same God, but viewed in all sorts of different situations. The Lord is slow to anger great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. Remember, slow to anger, right? This, had, this, this didn't happen overnight. In fact, what happened in the book of Jonah? This is great that we have the book of Jonah. God shows mercy to the Assyrians, much to Jonah's chagrin. And Jonah's like, what are you doing? No, these people deserve your wrath. Come on, let's go. It's called on the fire. Jonah sits down there and he waits for the fire to come. And it never comes. And he gets mad at God because he never sends the fire. All right. Lord is sl- here. Let me know if I can help. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. What's that? I know. I mean, the, the devices are, I don't know, getting frisky tonight. <laughs> All right, so this is God's essential character. Slow to anger, great in power, but will not at all acquit the wicked, okay? Um, and Nahum's gonna, he's gonna highlight, just like Jonah highlighted the mercy and the long-suffering of God, Nahum's gonna highlight the justice, the wrath of God against his adversaries. Um, and here's how it goes. Verse seven, it says, "'The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble.'" And he knows those who trust in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make an utter end of its place. Talking about uh, Nineveh. And darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. Right? Fool God once. Fool God twice. Well, you're not going to fool God twice, right? He will not rise up a second time. God's judgment is complete. It's total. 
It's unstoppable. When God moves to judge, when he moves to act, there is nothing you can do to, to, to withstand that. And this book describes in detail just the, the overwhelming nature of the, of the wrath and the judgment of God. This is an aspect of his character that cannot be isolated from his goodness and his love. He says the Lord is good. And those who take refuge in him, wow, there's all the grace and mercy in the world for them. But for those who remain opposed, for those who continue in their violent, brutal ways, which you can just go look up some of the ways the Assyrians would, uh, would the things that they would do to their enemies. God says, man, there has, you have been storing up bloodshed and violence and bloodshed and violence. And now it's time. Now it's time to reap what you've been sowing. Brutal people, you know, and that's they would they would try and strike fear in the heart of their enemies. You know, they would impale people and, and skin people and cut out their tongues and all these just really brutal practices because we're the big dogs. You know, we are going to subject you to uh, to our rule. And God says, you can only do that for so long before I in my love for the people that you're oppressing before I just overflow in wrath. So you can understand that wrath and love are, are very much two sides of the same coin, right? It's, it's, it's God's fiery love for those who take refuge in him that cause him to move with such decisive uh, opposition to those who are oppressing and, and, and killing and murdering and maiming these people that he loves. So God is jealous and the Lord avenges. That's that's just a very simple principle. God avenges wicked deeds. God avenges violence. God avenges bloodshed. Okay? This is very clear in, in uh, in the book of Revelation. You know, you just think of all the time. The martyrs are saying, when are you going to move? And he says, we will. <laughs> There's a time. Hold on. Just wait. And that's usually what God says about his wrath. Just, just wait. It's not in your timing. It's in my timing. But when I decide to move, I move. And it's decisive. And it's, tutter, it's, it's, it's utter and it's complete. All right. Um, so I want to kind of look at two angles um, that this, that I think you can read the book of Nahum through. And the first is that um, as it goes for Nineveh, as this book shows us, as it goes for Nineveh, so it will be for every city of man. All right. It says in chapter three, woe to the bloody city. Woe to the bloody city. Woe to the city in which uh, people are oppressed, in which the strong take advantage of the weak. Woe to the city that's full of bloodshed, violence. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip, the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots. Horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. 
because of the multitude of harlotries of the, seduct- of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Behold, I am against you. I am against you. This is something you never want to hear God say. As sweet as it is to hear, I am for you. It is terrible to hear God say, I am against you. Because what? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is against us, that's the end. That's it. You, you will have nothing going for you. I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And he says, I'm going to make a spectacle of you. I'm going to, I'm not just going to judge you. I'm going to, like, this is what the Assyrians did to their enemies. Make a spectacle of them. Humiliate them. He said, I'm going to come and humiliate you. But as it goes, I mean, so this is, um, this reminds us of the description of of Babylon in Revelation, right? The great harlot and all of the kings of the earth have drunk the wine of her immorality. But in a single day, she's going to come crashing down and everyone's going to stand in awe and go, oh my, whoa is Babylon, right? In a single day, she was laid waste. So as it goes for Nineveh, this is how it's going to go for any oppressive people, any system, any city, any endeavor of mankind, any association of people that, that exalt themselves against the reign of God, right? This is the Psalm 2 situation. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Right? He will terrify them with his wrath. And when he moves to oppose those that have thrown off his reign, the end is total and it's complete. So the first thing we see in, in Nahum is that God is dealing with Nineveh, with Assyria, with the height of human power. In that day, he's dealing with them like he's always dealt with every other human power. Think about Egypt. Think about any big city that's represented in Scripture. Egypt, uh, Assyria, Babylon later, right? He triumphs over Babylon. He triumphs over Rome, right? All of these big cities, the height of humankind, it's the beast. This is the beast from the earth. And in, in Revelation, it says, this is how it always goes. Mankind gathers together and they do things and they take counsel together the kings of the earth, and they want to throw off. They want to throw off his chains and say, let's get out from under his thumb and let's do our own thing. And he sits in the heavens, and when the time is right, he moves in fury, he moves in wrath, and he brings those cities to nothing. Right? The horses and the chariots are at the bottom of the Red Sea, never to, never to emerge again. The Assyrians are a laughingstock to everyone who remembers them. Right, is anybody here in this room scared of what the Assyrians can do to you? No, why is that? Because of God's wrath and because of his fury. Is anybody here scared of what Nazi Germany is going to do to you? No, because every time a nation rises up and exalts it, it's brought down. God brings it down. 
These oppressive regimes, they might last for a few hundred years, but when the time is right, God moves and the nations fall and the mountains are leveled, right? And God does this. God moves in history and he knows the rising, the falling of the nations and he has a plan and he is waiting and his wrath is revealed from heaven against these nations and, and confederations of, of the sinfulness of man. And so in this sense, the judgment of God is a source of great hope for the people of earth because it means that we're not going to be subject to the violence of Nineveh because God will move. God will rid the earth of the Ninevites, of the Assyrians, of the Babylonians, of the Romans, of the Egyptians. All right? Where people oppress the people of God, God will rise up and avenge them. He will. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He says, you, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it just a little while longer, and you'll see. For every bloody city, it will go as it has gone for every other bloody city in history. Right? It will. Uh, in, the, in the book of Acts... Um, Jesus, as the judge of all mankind, of all nations, was actually a key element to the preaching of the gospel. Hey, there's a man, and he's on the throne, and he's going to come and judge mankind. This was what the apostles were preaching. I mean, they were preaching salvation, repentance, and baptism, but they were also preaching that Jesus is the judge. All right, Acts uh, chapter 10 Verse uh, 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. There's this man, Jesus, and you can come to him and take refuge in him, but he's the judge of all mankind. And he is not going to clear the guilty. Acts chapter 17. Uh, verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He will judge the He has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's Jesus. Jesus, as the judge, was, was part of the good news of the gospel. Did you, uh, did you catch the gospel in, in Nahum? Did you notice it? Uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15. Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. Who proclaims peace. O Judah, keep your appointed feasts. Perform your vows. You're free to be the people of God. For the wicked shall no more pass through you. Right? I'm judging the Assyrians. They have been the constant oppressor of my people Oh, Judah, this is good news. God is full of wrath against this people. That's very good news for you. 
perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That's the gospel. God has moved and has dealt with the evil that would keep you in bondage, and he has dealt with it utterly. So now you are free to be the people that you've been called to be. These are good tidings. The book of Nahum and the wrath of God and the judgment of God is very good news for the people of God. So Nineveh is Babylon, is the beast, is Egypt. Nineveh is a portrait of this is how it goes. The bloody city is the bloody city, and it receives the wrath of God. There's another angle I I think it's it's also useful for us to view, and that is that, that Nineveh and Nahum is not only prophesying against large systems of, of human effort, um, but he's also, it, he's anywhere that there's evil, anywhere that there's wickedness, anywhere that there's opposition to the reign of God, God is against that, right? God is opposed to that and will not rest, will not be totally done until all of that is done away with. And so that means that, yes, it's true on a national level, but it's also true on a, on a personal level. Right? Anything left in you, anything left in me that opposes God, that oppresses other people, that's violent, God's wrath is coming against that, and he is banishing that from our lives. He's, he's bottling that up and removing it far from us. Um, go to Romans chapter 1. So in this sense, Nineveh is the old man. Nineveh is our old man. It's the life that we're, that, that we're being called out of. The wrath of God, this is Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Um, it describes the descent into idolatry. You know, when we worship things that God created more than we worship the creator, it changes our nature, right? This is the, this is the constant battle of the Old Testament. Um, verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible, corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. And then it says in verse uh, 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled, and this is what the cities of man are filled with, being filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, all right? 
It's describing Nineveh, describing every city of man, describing every citizen of every city of man. Knowing that the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only who do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. He's just described Nineveh. He's just described Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and Samaria and Judah at this point in time. Right? Remember, this is Romans after all. All of sin, Jew and Greek. Listen, we're all under the wrath of God here. What's to be done? He says in chapter 2, he goes on, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. So yes, while we rejoice that God judges the wicked, we've got to be careful. Because, hey, there's a little bit of Nineveh in me too. And when I, want, when I want to call down God's judgment on my adversaries, I have to be willing also for God's judgment to come on anything in me that opposes him. And anything evil that's left in me. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise, now this is, we'll get back to Jonah here, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render each to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Right? This, is why a, this is why a book of judgment on an ancient, brutal city means everything to us as well. Because that's how God thought about the Ninevites, not because he had something out for the Ninevites, but because that's what he has against all evil in every generation, in every age, in every individual. Whoever they are, Jew, Greek, doesn't matter. So Nineveh, is the, Nineveh shows us God's view of the old man. Uh, Ephesians, what is this? Ephesians 2, 5, 1, th- 2, colon 5, colon 1 through 7. It's like the fourth dimension Bible or something. I think it's uh, 5. five <laughs> Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. In fact, I know it's Ephesians 5, 1 through 7. 
Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has and given himself for us an offering a sacrifice to God for a sweet selling aroma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you got to read that part first. Right? Um, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Don't associate, don't live this kind of life. Because, yes, still, the wrath of God is directed at those things. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. All right, and then Colossians chapter uh, 1, I mean chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, and not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So, yes, God is bringing to an end and has brought to an end all of these evil things that plague us as individuals, but also that they, they plague the earth, right? It says in Revelation that he has come to destroy the destroyers of the earth. Why does, why does Nineveh need to go? Because it says at the end of, of Nahum... It's really interesting. The way it describes the city, it's like the, the anti-city, the anti-people of God, the anti-human. Uh, chapter 3, verse 14, or 15. Uh, there the fire will devour you, the sword will cut you off, it will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many. Multiply like the locust. Multiply like the swarming locust. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. You've been fruitful and you've multiplied. The locust plunders and flies away. And what, what has become of your multiplication has been the consumption and the destruction of the earth. As you multiply, the earth doesn't flourish. The earth gets stripped bare. By a people who are self, selfish, self-centered, right? And they multiply, and it's, it's not a good multiplication. 
It's a bad, and and become like swarms of locusts. Your generals are like great grasshoppers. Um, so, what do, we, what do we take away from this? All right, Nahum shows us that God is going to judge every bloody city of man. Thank the Lord. But, on the other hand, be careful, you who judge, you who want God to judge those people over there, because he will go judge everything that's bad about those people over there, and at the same time, he's going to judge everything that's still opposed to him in you as well. And so we need to rejoice that God is just, that he does avenge in righteousness. But we also need to understand that we're implicated in that. <laughs> we're a part of his judgment. We are, and, and we need to fear and, and live in repentance and reception of the grace of God. It says his kindness and his forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. He's being patient with us. He has poured out forgiveness. He is giving us space and time to receive his grace and to, and, and to be transformed by the blood of Jesus. So all of this makes me think of, and we'll, we'll end with this and we'll come to the table. Uh, all of this makes me think of the great story in Joshua chapter 5. The people of Israel, I mean, Joshua is the book of conquest. It's the book of occupying the land, driving out the sinful cities, uh, uh, occupying. And here they are on the borders of Jericho, which was a bloody city, which was an evil city, opposed to God. At the end of chapter 5, it says, And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No. Joshua sees this guy, Whoa! Here we are. We're the people of God marching through the land, and, he, and we're in front of a city, and here's this guy. And he says, oh, are you, are you here to lead us into conquest? Or are you for them? And he goes, no. <laughs> False dichotomy. Neither. He says, no. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And I don't, I don't live by your us or adversaries definitions. I'm here as the commander of the army of the Lord. And on the day of judgment, the commander of the army of the Lord, whose name is Jesus, shows up and anything in anybody that's opposed to who he is is judged and burned up. Right? And the, the wrath is directed at all comers. Right? This is... We're not, we're not in certain boxes. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped. All right, and so Joshua's world is, is turned upside down, and he falls to his face, and he says, this is holy ground. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. So then what happens is they go and they take the city. They go and they take the city. And it's also great what happens that this lady, Rahab, 
is saved because she wants to take refuge in Yahweh. And so as the city is crumbling down, as the wrath of God is falling on the city, and by the way, it says, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep. Total destruction, which is what happens when God moves against those who oppose him. But they've saved Rahab, all right? But then the other thing that happens is this guy named Achan takes a little bit for himself and lies about it, right? And as the commander of the army of the Lord has just judged that city in the very next chapter, this guy who's who's a member of the Israelites named Achan, he dies under a heap of stones, right? Because... The standard for everybody is the same. We don't form teams and get God on our side. No. We follow the commander of the army of the Lord. He is. It's like in Micah when he said, no, the Lord is the standard. Right? So Jericho, the city, is completely destroyed and cursed. Yea, God. Rahab is saved. Gracious God. But Achan sins. And the whole people, and then they, then it brings the whole thing to a screeching halt, right? Until they are able to deal with it and, sh- and shine light, and bring the proper punishment on uh, the one who took some of the some of the leftovers from the city into his own tent. All right. So yes, God judges the city, but He's also going to judge everything that we've kind of gleaned from the city of man and the way of man and we brought it into our own lives and we put it in our tent he's going to judge that too and that's opposed to God as well and he is against that just as much as he is against that city so we are to rejoice in the judgment of God because it means that evil is punished and good prevails but we're also to fear and humble ourselves knowing that in our flesh Dwells no good thing. Like Paul was constantly saying, he's like, but listen, <laughs> anything that's good in me, it's, it's, it's Christ in me. And I know that there's this old man, it's, it's been brought to, it's been dealt with, and it's dead. And you've got to reckon yourself dead to sin. So any way in which Babylon or Jericho or Nineveh has wormed its way into our hearts and, and has flattered us and we've kept it for ourselves... Christ has dealt with that whole city and everything associated with it. And if there's any leftovers in your heart, he's coming after that too. Does that make sense? God has dealt with sin. God is against sin. God has avenged sin. He has condemned it in the flesh of Jesus. But anything of sin that's still holding on to any of us, his wrath remains on that. Why? Because he... He can't stand people that do that? No, because, because of what it does to you. It makes you inhuman. It makes you less than he created you to be. And so he is dead set on rooting out all evil. And this is the work that we have too, by the way. This is the work that he's entrusted to us to fill the earth with the glory of God. 
and to drive out the darkness with the light. And so now we must, we need to yield to his continuing work of sanctification in our lives. Where he, he cleanses us and he purges us. Yes, he's, he's forgiven us, but he also is cleansing us and purifying us. And he wants to make an utter end of every last bit of wickedness and worldliness in us. And that's a good thing. It's because he's good. He's not going to leave us uh, consumed with those little outposts of, of, the, of the, the bloody city. Amen? All right, so we get to come to the table and celebrate the judgment and wrath of God, which is a weird thing to say. Right, But it's only because it says that we are in Romans 5. Let me read this, and this will kind of be our meditation coming to the table. When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in Nineveh, while we were still in Jericho, while we were still in Egypt, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So as we come to the table, let's just meditate on this. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath. We shall be saved from wrath through him. It's beautiful. God condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus tasted the wrath of God. And it doesn't mean that God's done being angry at sin. Right? I mean, clearly he's not. It means that we understand exactly how God feels about sin, but we also understand the lengths to which God will go to free us from that sin. He has made every way possible for us to be delivered from that sin. So now, as Paul says, so let's live it. Let's receive it. And let's allow him to fully save us and to fully sanctify us. Amen? So as we draw to the table, draw near to the table, this is the, the body and blood that save us from the wrath of God. But it's the body and the blood also that transform us into his image. Which means <coughs> pushing out and continuing to purify us from all 
unholiness, worldliness, uh, the things that, that grab our hearts. All right? So let's come to the table with a heart of gratitude for the kindness and mercy of God. So much gratitude that we are, we are humbled into, into living lives of true repentance. Amen? All right. Let's pray.